Hi, everybody. Kel Weinhold from The Professor is In. Welcome to the new version of our podcast. We are recording our podcast live on Wednesday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific. Make sure you're subscribed to The Professor is In newsletter to be sure and get that link if you'd like to join us live. Or you can listen to the edited version in the podcast form the following Tuesday. If you'd like to support the live or the podcast, you can head over to bit.ly slash ourpod, B-I-T dot L-Y slash O-U-R-P-O-D and help support these ongoing programs. Thanks a lot. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us begin. Today, what are we talking about? Okay. We're talking about rejection. How many of you have been rejected? (laughs) I guess we can think of that broadly, or we can think about it in terms of your academic work, whatever you, whichever way you want to think about it, right? And everybody who's not raising their hand, I think is just not listening right this moment because we've all been rejected, <laughs> pretty confident about it. But really in the rejected, the, what we're, the reason we decided to talk about it today, Karen, was you mentioned that it was that point in the job season when, when you deal with rejection, right? Mm-hmm. So what do you want to say about it? Well, so I was, um, I, I was reading a really interesting blog post recently, and I want to cite the person, Adam Grant. So if you look up Adam Grant, uh, PhD, he um, has a blog post about rejection. And he, so, so in other words, if you actually, if you Google like academic rejection, oh, so many people have talked about it, including us in our, in our podcast, at least once, I think actually twice in the past two years. And there's many other blog posts and podcast episodes and people tend to say the same thing, which is, you know, uh, here are four piece of, uh, pieces of advice if you get rejected. Like if your article gets rejected, put it away, uh, go do something else, go outside, come back to it, read it, you know, read the rejection when you're calmer, um, ask for help, you know, which is all real. I'm not dismissing that. That's all really, really good uh, stuff. But I was struck by Adam Grant's piece because he went a little bit further so I'm going to read, I think it's five or six elements, all each of which in and of itself could be a whole podcast episode, but I'll just uh, read them real quick. Uh, one, we're bio- biologically wired for rejection to hurt. Yeah. Uh, number two, academic rejection is unusually brutal. Uh, for one thing, because the stakes are so high. We could, uh, obviously we could go on about that, but the stakes are so high, plus people tend to be pretty harsh. Anyway, number three, rejection means you don't fit. You don't fit. Doesn't really mean that, but that's how we interpret it. Number four, rejection threatens your identity. Big time, big time. And it uh, relates to the imposter syndrome that we talked about last time. And, oh, I guess it's, I guess it's just, uh, yeah, what was that? That was four. But anyway, he comes to the conclusion, the takeaway, um, rejection is a fire, is a fire that burns off everything irrelevant. And he goes into Samuel Beckett (laughs) because of course he does. Because academics. (laughs) And uh, M. Shyamalan, M. Night, I never know how to pronounce his name, M. Night Shyamalan. 
and basically says um, it burns off everything irrelevant and then you're left with the purity of what's important. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a grand thing to draw from it. But yeah. can we can we go through them step by step? Because I'd love to get the Lister interaction on that so we can talk about it. But I'd also just like to go through them step by step. Mm -hmm. That first that so what's the first one again? We're biologically wired for rejection to hurt. Now, do we have any biologists uh, on the call today? Are you going to weigh <laughs> in and say, well, actually, uh, which we will welcome because that's what PhDs are wired to do. And we want to hear from you. So what I think is interesting about that, moving past whether which which biologist would say what about our wiring to be to be wired to hurt. First of all, it makes absolute sense to me if our brains exist to teach us. Right? If the whole system exists to teach us what to avoid and what to go toward, mm -hmm. um, on, a, on a pretty intense level, rejection is a thing we want to stay away from because it could be pretty dangerous back in the, like, you know, that, like down to the sensory level, oh, that plant hurts, I'm going to move away from that. So it well, makes sense to me. Yeah. Can I but, read the quote that he included? Yeah, sure. In prehistoric times, if being rejected didn't bother you, you could end up on your own with no food and no group to protect you from being mauled by a tiger, which would make it awfully difficult to pass on your genes. All right, right? Yay, so that's what I mean. It's like psychology. Even though rejection rarely has life or death consequences today, we're still wired to have those intense reactions. Neuroscientists argue that rejection actually causes physical pain. So... Now let's move over into the, to the, how do we manage it, right? So in, you mentioned all those articles that give all those advice and we've given the same advice, mm -hmm. but the one that, that, that I think is so absolutely true is we have to feel our hurt feelings, right? So if they we're biologically wired to feel this way, all the narratives about don't let it bother you, don't get upset, you'll have another chance, all the stuff that people do to try to medicate actual pain because they don't want to deal with their own worry about being rejected. This is the place where we can say, no, actually, this was really painful. I mm -hmm. feel really bad. Mm -hmm. And don't listen to all of the people. And sometimes us included that say, what did you expect? I mean, you don't say, what did you expect? But sometimes I feel like we're like, yeah, it's really hard out there is not the, the answer you need right there. What you need is somebody to basically give you a hug and say, absolutely. This is this is so painful. I'm so sorry. I was just had lunch yesterday, as you know, as you can know, that uh, with uh, someone who is a former professor, former tenured professor and dean, who is now a hospital chaplain and uh, in uh, Buddhist hospital chaplain. And she told me, it was just in passing, because we were talking about something else. She said, oh, well, you know the job of a chaplain. And I'm like, well, not really. And she said, well, it's not to tell people that things are going to be better or that it's not going to hurt or that they're going to get over it or whatever, whatever. It's to sit with someone and say, when someone is saying, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, I'm absolutely devastated, is to sit with them, look them in the eye and say, this is the worst thing that ever happened. I hear you. This is the worst thing that ever happened to you. Right. You, you must be absolutely devastated. Right. And we are... We wire ourselves. I don't know that we're we're actually wired to this. I feel like it's training because I feel, I don't see, think we see it across all of human existence. Mm -hmm. But the the our propensity to run as quickly as possible from pain is phenomenal. 
mm-hmm. other people's pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look at we can look at the history of racism in this country and mm-hmm. see how people, white people in particular, have run from that pain because I just can't look at this. It's mm-hmm. too overwhelming to me. So we're really, really good at running from pain. Mm-hmm. Meaning we're good at running from our own, but we're also good at running from each other people's and finding the person who can sit to you and say, this is so disappointing. Mm-hmm. I know how much you were counting on it. I know how much it was your dream job. I know how much you just, I know how worried you are. I see you. In the absence of that, the mirror works really well. Mm. Right? In you the absence of that person, yourself. saying it to yourself. Absolutely. Right? Like, I see you. This really, really, really was disappointing. Mm-hmm. So what's the second one? Well, that was a quick transition, but I just, I didn't know you were leaving that <laughs> so quickly. Like, but oh. uh, but I completely agree. I I think that it is um, for me even personally, it's been transformative to get over my cynicism and that academic distancing, you know, that that people often do who are drawn to academia, uh, and and really comfort yourself, really look in the mirror and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what led you for what's brought you to this place and and uh, and how it feels and how scared you must feel how scared you do feel because you're talking to yourself so you can literally claim some authority there you do feel yeah you literally are scared right now that maybe without this article without this job maybe your future isn't what you expected maybe without this article your tenure case isn't uh what you counted on, and uh, those fears yeah. are weird, are 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 real. Right. So that doesn't mean that the imagined future is real, but the fear in the moment is real. The 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 fear in the moment is based on the imagined future, though. So just, I think sometimes we leap out of grief by grabbing onto fear. Yes. Right. So I'm yes. gonna. I I'm all. I'm so uncomfortable with how sad and and. And everything I am that I'm going to go jump on the, the fear train. Mm-hmm. We, we don't want to sit in the station of just, I'm sad. I'm mm-hmm. so sad. It's like, well, I'm going to jump on the fear train. I'm going to jump on the blame train. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump on any fucking train, but this one mm-hmm. I think is really common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a, similar to how anger covers hurt, fear, oh, yeah. right. Wait, fear covers what? Fear covers grief. They all cover vulnerability. <laughs> they all cover vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Which is you're profoundly vulnerable when you when you try to get something and you don't get it. You're in an mm-hmm. incredibly vulnerable moment. Mm-hmm. And how's this sound to people listening uh, today to us here today? Does it resonate for you? I've just talked quite a bit, but uh Put it, put it in the chat box if you have any thoughts or anything. I am interested in whether you have found, to maybe to make that a little bit more specific question, um, have you found a place that you are able to feel your fear? I mean, your sadness, sorry. Adama says it's soothing. She's in the Q&A. Oh. Soothing. Is it soothing? Soothing is not a word commonly associated with me. It is with you. It is with me. 
Our friend last night said, I have, we have, we have a mutual friend who's also from Pittsburgh. We grew up right near each other, did not know each other. And she said, how did that person end up so soft? And you ended up so. She didn't feel it so sharp. That was it. She didn't feel it <laughs> yeah. so sharp. She didn't sure. need to answer that question. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So next one, Karen. Okay. Next one, academic rejection is unusually brutal. And he, um, I thought I was changing into the right glasses, but I wasn't. So excuse me while I change again. Um, and then he actually quotes Rebecca Schumann um, uh, because she had asked uh, for some, did some research for a blog post called why is academic rejection so very crushing? And, um, and, they're talking about, and then the stories that poured in were talking about the unique kind of pain inflicted on those languishing on the academic job market. And one person who uh, is on Twitter as Werner Herzog's bear, who I actually know personally by his real name, but I'm not gonna say it because I'm not sure if he wants that. Uh, the worst thing for me was having to undergo the flaying of my soul over and over again. I went on the market six times, only two of those tries were successful. Every August and September, as I started getting ready and looking for the ads, I would get anxiety attacks and couldn't sleep. Rejection exists in other fields, but not to the point that it becomes a yearly ritual of self-hatred and emotional pain. That's actually a really good point. Pretty much from September through May, every year for six years, I had a constant knot in my stomach. That's no way to live. And I honestly think that it's taken three years now for me to finally recover. And I know that he is, has a very successful career outside of academia now. And I just want to go back to, I think that it's uniquely brutal, not because what people say are brutal or not because the, the way that we're spoken to is brutal. And that's, that does exist. That's true. There's, there's definitely abusive behavior in the academy, mm -hmm. but I feel like it goes back to that thing that we talked about in our very first podcast episode, that academia is a cult. Mm -hmm. So that means that you're so being brought inside the circle and so schooled to be inside the circle that mm -hmm. each rejection feels like you're put outside the circle. So it's much, much more than just, you know, mm -hmm. I'm breaking up with an individual, mm -hmm. right? Or you mm -hmm. rejected mm -hmm. my application to X or Y, you mm -hmm. rejected my application to belonging. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why it hits so hard because mm -hmm. it's read through the lens of, this is an indication of my belonging mm -hmm. rather than an indication of my skill or nothing about me, right? Okay, so yeah, so you had reached the same point, the exact point in what you were saying about that academic rejection is unusually brutal because it says you don't fit. And indeed, number three on this list is rejection means you don't fit. Right. So. So, of course, now he cites uh, Sartre and says, I want to leave to go somewhere where I should be really in my place where I would fit in, but my place is nowhere. I am unwanted. <laughs> so here's the thing, folks. So this is going to be like you found that amusing enough, but OK, I didn't find it amusing because I don't. I'm, I'm kind of on a thing right now. So prepare to make a left less, this may feel like a less supportive, but it's not really. It's just a little bit of hard talk. I feel like the written into so much about rejection is entitlement. 
Mm. And I feel like written into so much is this belief, still a belief in meritocracy, Mm. still a belief that if I do all these things right, I'll get a job. And if I didn't get a job, it's something about me. And so that belief that's still in the soup of if I don't get this thing, it's about me Mm -hmm. rather than if I don't get, I, I have no entitlement to a job. I have no Mm -hmm. expectation, right? I would, Mm -hmm. I want to put myself in the best position I possibly can, but that, that cult-like thing of the academy is still feeding in that if I do all these things right, I'll get a job, which means we're judging everybody who didn't get a job. And we see that Mm -hmm. all the time, like, oh, well, I just still need to you just haven't done what I'm going to do. You didn't get that job because you didn't have three publications. Mm-hmm. You didn't get that job. Not to get that job because there are four jobs and 4,000 candidates and they picked the candidate that was the best fit, which is not a rejection of me. It's their agenda, mm-hmm. right? So I think I just want to bracket over a little bit that I think part of the advanced work of being on the job market is beginning to go into it understanding you don't have a, you don't, you're not entitled to a job. Mm -hmm. And I think that's super hard, especially for people who were raised on the idea of an entitled outcome. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean? I'm not entitled to a job. Mm -hmm. You're not. Well, it's, it's, it's very much quitlet is very, is very much a white genre. We've talked, as we've talked about, because white folks expect that if they put in sufficient effort, that trophy will arrive in due course. And, um, and that's not the only thing that's going on. No, because it is the also only the, thing. I was just, I just wanted to bracket that. Yeah. I, I just, well, really, I just want, well, okay. Well, I mean, there's also the gaslighting that happens in programs where they just won't tell the truth about the conditions of the job market or, you know, uh, or their actual hiring rates, their tenure track right. placement rates. Right. And there's all sorts of things going on. But yeah, but I, I only thought it was hilarious because it was so uh, Sartre's uh, classic um, existentialist over over dramatic exit. My place is nowhere. I yeah, and, and, and maybe you're catching me in a mood, but I feel like part of my, my discomfort, see, I want to be really kind about this because I have such, such compassion and such, uh, you know, like hurt for the people who have tried and tried and it, their dream didn't work. I have mm-hmm. stunning compassion for that. And I want to, if you want to sit with me and talk about what it's like to lose that dream, mm-hmm. I am right there. Absolutely. And sometimes I feel like it becomes the gnashing of teeth and the, and the, like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that you could be in a hospital room with a chaplain and saying, this is the worst moment of my life. And it would be real. And it would be real. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get this job is the worst moment of my life. Mm-hmm. Maybe you haven't lived the life I had, but mm-hmm. I've had worse moments than not getting jobs. Mm-hmm. I, it has been horrible not to get a job, painful. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes perspective calibration in there can be valuable all by saying none of it saying don't have your feelings have Mm -hmm. your feelings right Mm -hmm. allow yourself time to have that grief yes i completely agree 
I also want to say, so he expands just a little bit and says, um, here's an excerpt from a recent rejection email I received. We reviewed your cover letter and CV and have decided to make an offer to another candidate who is more aligned with our current research program. We received dozens of qualified applications, including yours, which made it very competitive. And his comment on that is that when you receive enough letters saying you don't fit, you don't align, you begin to wonder whether aligning is something you'll ever do. Yeah, and like I said, you're catching me on a day. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yeah. And he says, another blogger writes, uh, academic rejection is a special kind of hurt because if we believe that the academy is a meritocracy, being rejected by a pure meritocracy simply translates into believing that you truly have no merit. And you don't need to get us started on that. Right, on meritocracy. Yeah. Right. So, but, but here, here's the thing I think you can't do, you can do in mm -hmm. those situations of when you, when you have that disappointment and they say, and this is a perfect response to this email. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we pick someone who better aligns with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over here and I'm going to feel disappointed. And then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a, le a list of everything that I do and I do well. I'm going to mm -hmm. write all of my attributes. I'm going to write all of the, you sort of heal your ego mm -hmm. by listing what makes you great. Because mm -hmm. I think what happens is we spend all our time listing what we did wrong. And we, mm -hmm. how could I have done this differently? Where, maybe I didn't answer that question just right. Maybe I picked For the sure. wrong verb in this article. Maybe, sure. maybe they didn't pick me because I had spinach in my teeth at dinner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, they picked somebody who better aligned with what they were heading toward. You weren't that person. That is disappointing. But let's list all the awesome things you are, right? Mm -hmm. I'm smart. I'm a great scholar. You know, it's that Stuart Smalley from the old SNL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good person, but I do think it can really help to just separate it in a list of it. Like, what about in, and even if you look in your history in academia, go through a list of what people valued in you all those years, <laughs> right? Like For what sure. do people value? You've been doing this for 10 years. Find people who value you and list why they did. Mm -hmm. Because man, it can start to be black and white mm -hmm. and uh, wholly, fa wholly failed. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in this question for the folks listening. Tell me one thing that you value about yourself as an academic. Oh my goodness. Right, I, I expect it to be deafening silence right now. Uh, <laughs> but we'll wait because we yeah. are comfortable. Mm -hmm. Just stop wherever you are right now. You're out for, well, maybe not if you're out for a run, but really where, what is the thing that you value of, about yourself as an academic? Mm -hmm. And what's a second thing you value? What's a third thing you value? And where can you put that list when you go into the job market or you go into sending in an article so you can keep that as your like little life raft as you're being, uh, what, what's the word like tossed about by the seas, mm -hmm. right? I'm curious, that's awesome, right? So one of, the, one of the people on the call is saying, I'm curious, guess what? All y'all are, you wouldn't be PhDs. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. When I first started the professor is in, 
And I got to know a wide range of academics from the particular angle of working with them on their job documents, but scheduling appointments, scheduling start dates, you know, asking them to prepare stuff, asking them to read stuff and uh, edit their own work and come back. I really saw like I had never seen before that we are as a collective an extraordinarily talented, dedicated, resourceful, intelligent group of people. Just astonishing. I, I mean, things that I don't think we should ever, this may sound really like lowest common denominator to you, but I don't think it is. No. That when we make an appointment and we say the thing is going to be at nine, man, I can count on one hand the people who haven't shown up at nine on the dot. Punctual. Uh, if I say read these things before the appointment, people think those things have been read. You know, if I say do this prep, that prep has been done. I mean, we are, it's really extraordinary. And I, I, and these are things that are beyond like, I'm a good, I'm a good continental philosopher, analytic philosopher or whatever, you know, or I might, my, my take on uh, Nietzsche is, you know, extra, you know, exceptional. That's important too. But it's also, you're like a really highly functional person, even on your worst day. Right, right. So, so the, maybe for those of you who, um, are not quite brave enough to just say, here's what's good for me, then show of hands. Who feels like they are persistent? Well, uh, one of our commenters just said, I'm proud of my hard-won ability to come up with, capitalized, the good question. Took me years to get there though. But I would like, if you could elaborate, what do you, what's the good question? What does that mean? You mean in the classroom, like getting students to talk or your research question? Oh, the or research what? question. I took it as the research question, oh. but I'd love to hear. So do you feel, so you're out there listening to this right now. Do you feel persistent? Mm -hmm. If you have a PhD, you're persistent. If you're still working on it, you're persistent, right? Do you feel um, curious? Like our one person? You feel like you're a curious person? You feel like you're a resilient person? Because here's what I'm gonna tell you is that if you've been crawling through a PhD and you keep standing up and you keep submitting stuff and you keep applying to your jobs, you are resilient, mm -hmm. phenomenally resilient. And Karen named all the stuff we, in, a, in interacting with our clients, we see all the time, right? I am on time, I am prepared, I have thought about this, I have critical questions to ask you. I have, I can take information and absorb it and put it right back out there again. You've never seen anything like people prepping for job interviews and their ability to, to I'm going to take in what you're telling me, I'm going to reformat it, and I'm going to put it back out again. Just phenomenal skills. So I think that that could be super helpful as we're going through these disappointments to just remember to, um, to remember that you're not just the rejection. Because mm -hmm. I think that rejection email that he wrote is pretty like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think the emotions that come from it are much bigger. And mm -hmm. I think it's good to just say, we're also really freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, mm -hmm. very hard to say you're freaking awesome when you've spent the last X number of years around people who would mock you, really mock you. If you ever tried to claim any special whatever uh, for being punctual <laughs> and being resourceful and being organized, but that's wrong. It's okay. wrong to mock that because it's extraordinary and it's um, and it's rare 
And, and for most of us, it's not natural. It's not, we didn't, we, nobody's born punctual, really. These are things that if there, I mean, obviously some of us are, have more tendencies than others. Like I am, have to struggle quite a bit, but, um, but still these are the, all of these things are learned behaviors. And so the, the all of it uh, shows is it, it reveals, you know, dedicated effort over years and years and years. And you should entirely give yourself credit for all of those things. And uh, our, our commenter said in terms of her, the good question, uh, the question that gets students talking and the question that drives and motivates grueling years long research. Yeah. And those are both uh, amazing, amazing talents to be able to do that. So the, we do so, have one more, I think. Yeah, I, I think we have one more. Yeah. What, and what's the other one? Rejection threatens your identity. And I think we're, we're back to episode number one, the Academy is a cult. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can I insert my weekly anti-capitalist rant? Please the, do. <laughs> you are trained to make your work your identity, to make sure that you prioritize work, which is maintaining the system. And so your work and your worth are wrapped like a just a brutally strong cord that like the cords that hold up the Golden Gate Bridge. It is a, it is a really thick cord. It says worth work, identity work. work. Mm -hmm. And I spend so much time in Unstuck, which for those of you who don't know is the art of productivity and it's a 12 week course, online course that I do. So much time trying to get people to separate themselves from their work. Your work is a product. It is a creative product, which makes it a very, very different thing, right? So making a, a sculpture, making a piece of art, writing an article, it's a very different thing when it's your creative product than it's my effort to write a brief for an argument. But still, if you have to write a brief and defend a case and you get the outcome of that case tied to your identity as a lawyer, you're not gonna last very long because things go wrong, you lose cases. Mm -hmm. So asking yourself, wait a minute, this can't threaten my identity because my identity is not my work. My work is the thing I do and I love it mm -hmm. and I enjoy it and I'll enjoy it more if I don't make it myself, trust me. So trying to find that little bit of air so it can't threaten your identity. Mm -hmm. I Which does not preclude being incredibly sad yes. if you've been chasing a goal and you don't get that goal. None of this is meant to be playing the glad game or toxic positivity or anything. You feel your grief, you cry, you rage, you shake your fist, all of those things. And at the same time, you have all these other resources that you can draw on. So uh, the, the blog post has a couple of interest, has an interesting quote and a comment so the quote is, academe isolates you, cutting you off from other more reasonable and more varied perspectives on how to define success or how to value the self. Without those outside variations, it's so easy to see only two possible career outcomes, success on the tenure track or complete and utter failure. And, um, and then this blog post says that people who put all their eggs in one identity basket, linking the whole of who they are to a single career identity become less resilient in the face of rejection. And this is the thing I really like. The reality is we all have multiple identities. 
Psychologists have found this can be a source of resilience. When one identity is threatened, we can lean on a different identity. And I love that. And it relates to therapy work that, uh, that we've been doing called internal family system. And it doesn't have to coincide with that. Like it's a much more complicated thing. But once you begin to see that you have parts inside yourself that are, some are stronger, some are weaker, some come into play at different times for different reasons with a protective role or whatever, you can really like say, oh, I see you. Oh, I see you also. And um, uh, <laughs> All I just the, started that episode. All of the PhDs in psychology are just going, oh. They are, they are. I'm sorry. Please forgive oh. me, but whatever. Just bear with me. But I just saw a thought of the last episode of The After Party. Yeah. Have you guys seen The After Party? If you haven't seen The After Party, please, like, go see The After Party. It is hilarious. And the last episode is uh, a person who is enacting both sides of an inner dialogue, and it's quite hilarious. Anyway, yeah, so, but you can, you have, uh, what, whether we go with pop psychology or not, that you can entertain more than one identity. And you already do, I'm sure. But you, you know, some of them are kind of like weak and attenuated. And you can, uh, you know, you can, you can build them out and say, no, like you, like, you know, actually, to tell you the truth, back in the day when I used to cry every day at the University of Illinois campus and ended up sitting with my little glue stick and my glitter and my doilies for my kids' valentines, which then eventually became Japanese paper crafting, which became my first business. I, that was, there's no other way to say it. I leaned into another identity. I've always been crafty, not, not an artist, at all. No, I didn't know identity identification with it, but I was always good at it. And it was a thing I always loved. And I kind of leaned into that. And it was an embarrassing identity because uh, it's so pitiful, quote unquote, compared to the, you know, prestigious academic career identity, professorial identity. But yet it was one that it was a resource I had. I used it. I played the crafting card and it gave me a way out it gave me a way to reinvent myself and you all have those you all do i don't know what they are but you have them but i do want to clarify for those people who are the way all sorts of things can be misinterpreted um, i don't think karen thought of it as pitiful i think that that was the perception that other that oh yeah no members, right? i thought it was pitiful i, just, I wouldn't but, have done it but yeah no they all thought i was pitiful for right. sure i'm just saying that, that that could in in listening come off as you saying it was so pitiful and i wanted to clarify that the other thing i wanted to going back to the psychology stuff and not the i, I reject the idea that it's pop psychology because the theory that you're talking about is an actual theory maybe your description of it was a little bit loose but it is an actual theory. But I think the other theory that is really, has a lot of potential in this particular case is um, rational emotive behavioral therapy. And this is basically where you assess whether your interpretation of, of something is rational mm -hmm. and ask yourself the question of, is what I'm saying true? Is it logical? Is it helpful? Because sometimes after these rejections, we can make these huge statements about I'm a failure, I'll never get a job, I'll do all those things. And that question alone can, can slow you down enough to not fall into the place I see people go a lot, which is the um, kind of the, the, the toxic negative self-talk. Right, and it, and it can you just sort of go over him here into that despair? I'm terrible. I'm no good at this, and that that rational 
emotive behavioral therapy idea of asking, is this true? Is it mm -hmm. logical what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And most importantly, I think, is it helpful? Is this thing I'm doing helping me right now? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it is, right? So it, we can be start off with like, it's not fair, it's not a bird to teach. Like, okay, I quit, you know, it's not fair, I quit. Okay, it certainly is not fair, depending on how you define fair, but it may not be helpful for me right now to give up. It may not be helpful for me to, um, to do X, Y, or Z. It may be more helpful for me to analyze what control I have in it, realize there's a lot of control I don't have and deal with my upset about that and surround yourself with people who make you feel better. Mm -hmm. That's a random turn, but I think it just says, you know, it's such a big thing to surround yourself with people who are on your side. Mm -hmm. I agree. I just discovered an interesting little thing I hadn't seen before in the blog post that Samuel Beckett, and some of you probably know this very well who are with us today, um, being more literate than, than I am, but uh, Samuel Beckett was famous for saying, for writing the line, quote, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Right, fail better, fail and yeah, and apparently, you know, that's become, you know, corporate coaching, sports coaching, the whole thing, fail better. Um, you know, so it's overused, it's become trite, but nevertheless, it's still pretty, still pretty good. One of my dear friends who died a couple of years ago, whenever any one of us was heading into a thing we really, really wanted, right? Oh, I really want this house. I really want this job. I really want this relationship, whatever it is. Like, if you said to her, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I found this place. I found this job. I found this thing. Her first response was always this or something better. <laughs> and so it was this reminder that it might not work out, but there's, very, there's a possibility that something better will come along. And I just always appreciate it. And I've used it a lot in disappointment. So over the decade or so of being like, and then just saying, okay, this or something better. What's next? which I think is another way of saying next, next. Okay, mm -hmm. that didn't work. Next, mm -hmm. after you process all the feelings. So that's my take on it all. Anybody have any questions, thoughts, observations, um, stuff you want us to address before we sign off on how to manage disappointment? I'm so glad you found that blog post, Karen, because it's so spe very specific to academia and so much about rejection that you ever read about is like, emotional rejection mm -hmm. i mean not to say that academic rejection isn't emotional that's the point they're making but like you know i wanted that mm -hmm. that 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 person quit dating me or that you know i got divorced or i didn't get the you know whatever yeah right yeah it's really thoughtful i i like anyone who's quoting samuel beckett and Sartre and uh m night Shyamalan in a single blog post so <laughs> We'll yeah, put I'll put, try and remember to put the link to it into the description of the podcast episode. All right. All right, folks. We will see you next week. We will sort out um, what happened with the links. Promise, promise, promise. We will get this figured out. All right. <laughs> Bye.